Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. Hey everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I am joined in with Jacob, joining me in all the way from the UK, um, whom we sort of just connected online uh, through like a, a Facebook group, I think it was, a Nootropics Facebook group, and uh, we sort of started yeah. geeking out and sharing our experiences and things like that. So today's episode is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be talking all things Nootropics, uh, brain hacking, uh, philosophy, and things like that. So Jacob... AKA Bam, 
welcome to the show, man. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for uh, inviting me on this increasingly popular and successful, uh, you know, business and podcast you've got going on. I'm impressed with the people you've managed to uh, get on the show. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be here, and I think it's doing a really important function as well. You know, uh, we need things like this. Uh, I appreciate you know, it, man. Yeah, thanks yeah, for that. Cool. cool. Do you want to do you want to just sort of maybe like start out by giving my listeners a bit of a, a background into your story? Like, how did you get into Nootropics? Yeah, good question. Uh, I love answering it as well. Well, um, it started with the idea of hacking. The idea of hacking really resonated with me, and I've, I thought that you know being able to control things that you're not traditionally allowed to or you know, able to control. It was just something that endlessly fascinated me. <laughs> and computers were my first introduction to having control that you're not really allowed to have, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, got into computer hacking and I never did anything wrong or immoral, but nevertheless, it is it's a dangerous path to go down. And at one point I was caught hacking my school system. So that went pretty badly. And I was, you know, I was meant to go to prison, honestly. So wow. there was a point in my life where I said to myself, uh, you know, I, I can't continue doing this because I know, I know that I will eventually, you know, get caught doing something really bad, even though it's not necessarily immoral, you know, uh, of what I was doing, just having access to things. So, you know, uh, and I realized that I was able to remember things about the brain very well. So, you know, almost like the drop of a hat, I just said to myself, well, now I'm interested in neuroscience and seeing what I can do with the brain. And, the, you know, people only ever talk about changing their brain when it comes to recreational drugs. You know, that's the kind of biggest most pertinent way i think that the or obvious way that people talk about it in my experience at that point and I, I thought well there's no reason why they have to be you know of this nature you know hallucinating things and experiencing things that it could be cognitive you know you could have revelations about your newfound intelligence you know and that really uh, caught my eye caught my attention mm. and so i distinctly remember uh, well, actually, I went to university, and for the first year of university, I was I was learning about uh, psychology because that I found very interesting, and women's psychology and objectification and stuff. And and then I realized, oh, hang on, you know, if if I could hack a brain like a computer, I would want it to be as intelligent as possible. So, you know, th and then I thought, well, what have we done to do that? What have we done as a human race to enhance our brain? And it turned out basically not all that much really on the grand scheme of things there hasn't been huge changes you know you don't hear people saying you know I, i'm now at iq 190 you know uh, things like that and i thought well that's that's kind of peculiar to me so uh, and that's when peptides became exciting and then it's, the rest is you know history really but um yeah hacking things is very fascinating to me and that's what introduced me to nootropics uh, yeah, and peptides, that's, that was special to me because I, I realized that anybody, an individual, anyone could just go out and get whatever peptide they wanted. And so their safety profile as well just meant it, it was a winner. It was a game changer. And I left, I continued down that road and I have done ever since. 
Mm. Man, that's awesome. So we'll, obviously we'll get into peptides soon, but I want to sort of recap and um, hone in on maybe let's give our listeners a bit of a, a snapshot because a lot of them may not even know what nootropics are. And I, I mean, like we've, I know we've been personally experimenting with them for many years, but do you want to sort of maybe give like a bit of context as to like what nootropics are and how they became popularized? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, nootropics are, uh, they, they mean mind turning. That's the kind of, you know, uh, definition of the word, what it's referring to. So, and although the term mind turning is what it means technically, it also is referring to compounds that are able to increase an aspect of your cognition whilst not giving side effects, whilst not giving, you know, inherent downfalls to the way that they work. They have to be kind of safe. You can't overdose on them very easily, you know, things of this nature. So they're, they're actually referring to a certain kind of chemical that is safe to use, that you can take repeatedly and that manages to enhance cognition. Um, but it's not necessarily reliable. It doesn't necessarily have to work in everyone. But yeah, that's what nootropics are. I kind of honestly, I prefer to use the term cognition enhancing compounds because you have less restriction in what you can refer to, um, you know, and people land up battling over the semantics of things, which is kind of boring. So yeah, and that's the general idea of nootropics uh, in a sense is things that enhance your cognition that are safe. Um, and there's so many available. They can be natural or synthetic. That's mm-hmm. important to know, mm. or both at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, I, um, but it started off with paracetam, and that begin that paracetam finding spawned a whole family of different compounds. And this paracetam, the paracetam family, is like the Rothschilds of nootropics. They have complete monopoly, really, on even research that is done today that looks at an overview of how you can enhance cognition, they will refer to the racetan family. They will refer to how big it is and things. And it dominates a lot of uh, scientific and academic perspectives are just dominated by the racetan family to some degree. Uh, but also modafinil. That's also very domineering in how people are, how academia goes forward. So, yeah, that, that's how it started. I think that was in the when was it, the 70s, early or 60s before then? Yeah. Um, yeah. Corne- what was his name? I think it was Cornelio Georgia, like a Romanian. Yeah, yeah. Or something, but- I, yeah, that's right. I, You know, I, I don't particularly like a lot of the, the state of nootropics at the moment. So it's not of extreme interest to me, to be honest, because I think they can be revamped completely. Mm. So, but yeah, they, they, these are important people nonetheless. <clears throat> Definitely. Mm. Mm. So yeah, that's the yeah. So with the um, racetam, so like when I do a lot of you know research, it's funny to see how they use like for example, paracetam as the lead the lead material, and then they compare. You know how they 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 compare yeah. certain substances to it, and I've seen like a few fairly novel sort of like herbals or other like compounds that they use to literally compare the anti amnesic. Uh, Effect. Yeah. Have, you, have you seen much research of like any substances that sort of compare at all? Yeah, yeah, um, it's true. A lot of, well, they compare a lot of the Rastam family to paracetam to see how much better it is, yeah. you know, because they will take the paracetam structure and enhance it. But it's also used to evaluate the nootropic potential of 
you know, everything basically from natural stuff to, uh, you know, um, like magnetic or electrical stimulation as well. They will also see how it compares. And uh, it's an important baseline to have. But, it, you know, it's something that's established in rats more than it is in humans, right? So it may not be the best idea to do that if you are going to compare things in humans because racetams on, you know, they, they can be hit or miss, you know. But in rats, they're very, it's very reliable at improving memory and preventing memory loss. Mm. But yeah, hypermnesics, uh, they're also called. But the, the, the problem with um, uh, anti-amnesics is that they try and see if they can prevent memory loss, right? But yeah. that's not what nootropics are about mm. totally. They're about improving memory beyond baseline, you know? And this idea that going beyond baseline and maintaining your baseline, that's something I think people confuse. And, you know, nootropics are about actually going beyond what you normally would be able to do, you know, and achieving all the different possibilities of your brain power instead of just achieving the best one that you can in your with your current brain i think mm -hmm. so yeah parastam has changed the world in the respect of being able to give a standardized and uh, well studied kind of well acknowledged definitely a uh, form of brain enhancement and it spawned i think the uh, commonplace view in researchers that if you have something that enhances cognition it's likely to influence this uh, neurotransmitter, this chemical signaling molecule they're called glutamate. And I've seen in papers, both recent and old, that they say, you know, the standard way of thinking is that if it enhances cognition, it will improve or modulate in some way the uh, ability for glutamate to function. And to me, that was saying, oh, that's big news, because yeah. a lot of people think it's not glutamate, you know, it's actually choline, which... Yeah, but I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. I don't know how much people know about these terminologies well, and things. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Let's sort of let's sort of um, we'll take a step back and we'll break down for our listeners to understand more about the neurotransmitters. So, like, you just touched on one of them, glutamate, which is like the primary um, excitatory, whatever. But let's go through all of them and give them like and explain them from a pretty like basic term because I know you know your stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It may be different to a lot of other people's kind of knowledge, however, but yeah, um, the, the basic, the, like the building blocks of your thinking could be argued to be these neurotransmitters, right? And, you know, neuro refers to the neural cells and transmitter is moving, right? It's the transmission of uh, information. And that is done via these chemicals. And you can transmit different information with different molecules, right? So with glutamate, we're transmitting stimulating information, but it has a lot of different receptors. So it can mean slightly different things for each receptor, very different things. And, you know, we have things that are mostly used to communicate forms of emotion, forms of cognition, you know, uh, attention and awareness. So we'll go through them, right? So dopamine. Dopamine is used to regulate your muscle movements, and it can be both inhibitory, so it will dull the activity of neurons, as well as stimulate yep. the activity of neurons. And dopamine is confusing for that reason, because it can regulate you know, your muscle movements. It can also regulate your mood. It can regulate all many different aspects of your mood and also communicate with other neurotransmitters. And it also controls your ability to have 
uh, planning and organizing yourself, regulating your behavior and storing things in your head, manipulating them in your head. And, uh, you know, as, as well as a lot of kind of primal instincts as well, you know, sexual motivation, aggression, uh, all of these, you know, that's a huge range of topics. And of course, there are other molecules that will also do the same thing. So it's important not to, you know, say, oh, I'm irritable, therefore I don't have enough dopamine or something of that nature. Although, you know, there are definitely trends. But um, yeah, so the important thing to remember with dopamine, I think, is that when people try and fix or modulate or improve their dopamine, is that there, there's a, a different way forward to improving your emotional aspects of dopamine function and your cognitive aspects of dopamine function. Uh, I'll probably get into this later, actually. But the next one I would say would be serotonin. Serotonin, also very interesting, has a huge role across the entire body. It's most of the receptors are found in the gut, yep. but um, it has a huge role in our ability to perceive time and regulate our perceptions. Of course, I'm sure a lot of people know this, you know, all pretty much, well, a lot of the hallucinogenic substances uh, are done, they use serotonin to do that. And because of their ability to influence our perception, they have the ability to change the way that we respond to things and how creative we are, right? Our imagination is essentially, you know, fabricated sensations in a way. And that ability for serotonin to like alter our imagination and our perception is something that we could really use to enhance creativity. So I think there's a lot of potential with that when it comes to cognitive enhancement. And I've read that the receptor that, that causes hallucinations also manages to gate the ability for our prefrontal networks, the networks that deal with how we plan and organize and create and discern. So, um, so the plasticity of those networks are controlled by the same receptor that makes us trip. So, you know, there, there's a huge potential there. And it kind of explains why people microdosing on LSD and things can have benefits to their ability to be more resilient, stressed, and uh, be creative. So I really like serotonin. And I think it would be really good to be able to you know, improve serotonin so that we have a much better enjoyment from our perceptions, like our food, you know, socializing, meet, having new experiences and seeing beautiful sights and things like that. It's, mm. I think it can help us be more appreciative by far. Mm. Mm. Um, another one, uh, neurotransmitter is choline. Now, choline is an interesting one. I've recently changed my understanding about choline, um, but it, traditionally it's something that is heavily uh, used in muscular junctions as well, so our muscle control, uh, as well as our ability to pay attention and learn things. Now, learning is different to memorizing, right? Mm -hmm. To learn something is like to be able to pass and deconstruct the situation down so much that you can reconstruct it without having to memorize much. So it's a way of like making memory super efficient. If you learn something, it's because you understand it, you know, and where, so when they say in research papers, oh, we've noticed that rats learn better when they have more choline available, when their uh, acetylcholine neurons are working better, suddenly they can learn better. I think there's a lot of uh, cognitive elements there that are very deep that run into how well they can understand a situation and pass it and then 
walk away with a whole new understanding about their environment. So I, I think it's that's a really important chemical to pay attention to when you want to have a better ability to you know shift your attention uh, and do higher order cognitive skills. Mm. And it, you know um, what's uh, interesting is that glutamate, the abundant excitatory neurotransmitter has within its identity this ability to just stimulate acetylcholine. You can never separate glutamate from acetylcholine. So, you know, no wonder they say that traditionally glutamate would be the the neurochemical that improves learning and memory when it also has the ability to just, you know, boost acetylcholine levels to really high degrees. You know, Mm. um, I'm mentioning choline and acetylcholine uh, interchangeably but yeah it's it's a it's a, all acetylcholine <laughs> but um yeah and that's you know that's fascinating because when people uh think that you know this molecule is using my acetylcholine because i need to have choline in order for it to work right like with racetans yeah. they say oh you know this is a, an acetylcholine compound because i must have the resource required to use it that's like it's true but it is primarily a glutamate compound yeah. right so it's just this one neurotransmitter influencing another so you know mm. it's important to not mix the two up um another one i say uh, histamines histamines are really interesting as well sure yeah <laughs> they they can uh, control a lot of aspects of our uh, attention and, you know, they're kind of similar to choline in that respect, but they do have a remarkable ability to change the structure of neurons and uh, really powerfully influence uh, inflammation and brain functioning to a really high degree. You can really switch the lights on with histamines and it's a form of kind of stress response, you know, and it's, you know, a lot of compounds work by stressing the brain but only in the way that is beneficial to our brain functioning. And it, it, to me, it seems as though our endogenous stress molecules do two things. They kind of, they plasticize our brain, and then they also make that plasticizing work towards a bad thing, right? So more stress response, poorer ability to, to think clearly. So it's like they're just molding our brain to be more stressed, and if you can separate that ability to change the brain and the ability to make us more stressed, then what you've got then is a compounds that could just just get all the goods without the bad mm-hmm. and uh, increase the ability for the brain to change itself and modulate its its structure. And a different structure is the essence of nootropics, uh, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, noradrenaline, final one I'll go into, noradrenaline closely related to dopamine, and this noradrenaline has taken my fancy because it has this unique ability to change the interconnectedness of brain cells. So how well they connect from another cell to this cell. And there are certain ways, uh, or sorry, certain forms of connectivity between brain cells. There's the form of connectivity where it's talking to a very distant neuron, a very far away in a different lobe, doing completely different things. And then there's the form of connectivity where it's connecting to close by neurons and it's that close by communications where lots of uh, neighboring neurons are communicating very quickly that form of of uh, communication is where very higher order very intelligent functions uh, reside 
And it's, you know, it's one of my life's ambitions to be able to increase this close quarters communication between neurons so that they uh, exchange their messages very, very, very quickly. And you get very high powered information processing. And when it's very high powered information processing, it can happen very quickly and it can get you very far in terms of, you know, how many steps you're doing mentally. And that communication is one that is decreased from hallucinogenics, right? right? Because creativity is almost the antithesis of this high processing, the, the opposite, the complete invertedness of uh, this higher order close quarters communication that deals with things like working memory, which, you know, do, do you know working memory? Do you mean the, like the mechanisms or like the way in which it's, way in which it's, it... uh, what kind of memory it is? Well, I don't so, know what they, how do they, how do they define like working memory? Is that like within like a 24 hour uh, period or? No, it, it's uh, the, it's uh, how many things you can keep in your head oh. at any one time whilst mm. still being able to manipulate them. Right. So if I showed you, like, have you seen those uh, IQ questions where it's a bunch of shapes and then they say, you know, here's some shapes and here's another set of shapes. What's the next shape? Yeah. You yeah. Know? And there'll be a pattern that you have to try and find and it'll look like gobbledygook. And, it, you know, you, oftentimes just basically is. But, um, yeah, that's that's the kind of memory that uses your working memory because how many things can you put in your head and manipulate them to find a pattern? And that form of high-intensity uh, uh, loading or stress on your brain, you know, that depends on this very close quarters, high-speed neural communication that does not communicate with faraway neurons. And neuroadrenaline can alter neural networks to be far better at communicating to nearby neurons. Mm. So the, the upside is that you may have a higher working memory, but the downside which means that you can hold more things in your head and solve more complex problems with working memory improvements. But the downside might be that you're not as good at creativity. Yeah. Right. That's difficult. And I've actually asked a famous scientist, um, what's his name? Uh, what's a drugs without the hot air? Uh, I can't remember now. The guy who wrote drugs without the hot air, um, you know, famous guy who talks about, the legalization of weed and, and uh, LSD and DMT, and he thinks that a lot of drugs should be made legal. And I asked him his thoughts on people who take LSD who may be decreasing their ability to store things in their head uh, and manipulate them with working memory. And he said, well, maybe bank uh, accountants and, and bankster people shouldn't be using it because they need their working memory. People who have high-functioning jobs so I guess clearly it is this unresolved paradigm where you will sacrifice on creativity if you have a higher working memory. But hopefully we'll get around that, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, those are the kind of basic building blocks. Awesome, man. Now, great, great summary. There. There's a lot of a uh, lot of information for our listeners to unpack. So, um, so we'll sort of maybe get into. So now that we've obviously broken down the neurotransmitters, I think we sort of skipped GABA. Um, but we can, <laughs> do you want to, yeah, do you want to maybe explore that on there finally? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so GABA is very, very important. It's important to your entire brain. It's like, a bit like glutamate in that your entire brain relies on it immensely, you know, and the, the entire brain uh, uses it in order to function properly. So GABA is a huge building block. It is like, it's like having 
uh, if you didn't have GABA, it would be like having no negative numbers in maths. You know, the, the whole idea would just fall apart. I mean, you need GABA. And what's interesting about GABA is that, um, that well, inhibition, the idea of inhibition has is very, very important because a thought is much like a constructed sort of castle or a, or a statue. You know, you're carving away parts of it in order to make this definition, right? And a, an intelligent thought is like having this a structure to it. And, you know, uh, GABA inhibiting neurons is like carving a structure, right? So when you have an intelligent thought, it's like you've pieced together two distant ideas and you found a relationship and you've made something that's intelligent, right? That requires inhibiting all of the irrelevant information. So it's very, very important to allow yourself to recognize an intelligent thought. And if you can't recognize it, you haven't, you haven't properly had it. So mm. with GABA, it's important to have a strong, healthy GABA system because it is your building block to carve an intelligent thought. It's much like making a statue or a sandcastle. You've got to get rid of some of the sands to make the beauty, right? Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, that, that's, that's how uh, relevant GABA is to cognition. And what, um, GABA is very, very powerful as well. So there are, you can have huge amounts of damage to GABA neurons and you can still have your core GABA functioning well because there are these neurons that have this special, remarkable ability to fire at 200 times a second. And that's way faster than neurons were traditionally thought to be able to fire at. So be, if they fire at 200 times a second, they're basically getting, <laughs> they're like interrupting signals before they've even reached their destination. So you can have a, a you know, a thought, uh, a potentially epilepsy is, is kindling, is happening. And then these inhibitory neurons fire so fast that it stops the epileptic seizure in its tracks. Mm. Uh, and that can that can happen. So uh, uh, GABA has loads of different ways of communicating with neurons. It can land up improving your social skills. It can land up clearing your head. It can improve your quality of life because it can get rid of all the stress that may have built up over decades of, you know, having a job. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, and so it's got a lot of therapeutic potential. And a lot of people, it's understandable why a lot of people turn to benzodiazepines. Uh, because they do a remarkable job of being able to just get rid of all the issues that were in your head, you know, and it's a form of a kind of escapism in a way. Mm. But yeah, if we can find a way to kind of increase the functioning of GABA without forcing it so as to downregulate its ability, and eventually, if you continue to force the GABA action, you lose the receptors and even the neurons, and eventually you'll end up with more issues down the road. Mm. So it's a huge uh, therapeutic requirement to have a good GABA system really yeah so yeah we, we forgot that but yeah back on track <laughs> yeah no I did a um, remarkable job at summarizing GABA and just a very yeah I mean I felt like you brought that all together and that was really clear probably the best description of GABA and just in general the neurotransmitters did a really fantastic job oh of, thank you yeah summarizing that because um you brought in elements of like you know the the philosoph philosophical side of things and then the functionality, which I really like, which is cool. Um, you sort of mentioned, um, I want to sort of go back to the concept of time, perception of time, because that fascinates me. Yeah, that is, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I mean, we always complain that there's not enough hours in the day. Well, 
maybe there are, you're just not perceiving them correctly. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, for example, like flow state, flow state is a very complex phenomena. And, you know, a lot of people think of, think of it as like a prefrontal thing where your prefrontal cortex shuts down and, uh, you know, thereby related to dopamine in some respects or it's, but flow state is not easy to pin down. But I'd say it does look like a lot of the ability for our brains to change its perception seem really seem to be related to serotonin. And, you know, in that sense, they build our understanding of our lives. And serotonin, I think, is something that can get kind of missed. And people don't realize that, you know, their life is filled with sensations. And, you know, I consider m myself as someone who is dopamine uh, mm -hmm. primarily dopaminergic basically and i think it's really easy to just miss the fact that you know you're meant to enjoy food you're meant to enjoy a nice sunset you know and that's where serotonin comes in but yeah the, i don't know in a uh, huge amount about the ability for serotonin to alter our time perception but i know that um yeah it can be done all the time and there can be some bizarre phenomena or something to mm -hmm to um that serotonin can do you know absolutely mm. bizarre <laughs> yeah do you want to i want to sort of go into more about the um oh linking in the serotonergic system with the opioid like because like i know the um the 2a sort of maybe like not not so much the opioid but like the enjoyment response and, and pleasure response yeah and how it links there yeah that that is really interesting and I, i'm still trying to decide you know, if, if serotonin is using the opioid system or if it is, if it has its own ability to assert a value, you know, uh, opioids are, are thought of as this universal value system uh, that isn't particularly, uh, sorry, one second, I just want to get rid of that noise. Okay. Wow, it's really frustrating. Um, but yeah, the, people think of the opioid system as like the primary currency of enjoyment and I, you know, I do wonder if perhaps serotonin is providing, or not so much enjoyment per se, but like pleasure. And it's a big question as to whether serotonin has its own ability to make its own value and provide something that is similar to opioids and how it satisfies and is pleasurable, or if it is using the opioid system as it's a, a, as a way of in, triggering the satisfaction and enjoyment. But I think from a cognitive perspective, at least in terms of cognitive performance, it is quite important to steer away from the opioids uh, kind of family of receptors because they're, they're quite problematic, you know. Yeah. And if but if serotonin has a way of using the opioid system, then that must mean that there is a way to make it so that you can enjoy the opioid system without having this the issue that opioids bring with it, you know, which is primarily a reduction in GABAergic inhibition. And opioids are really, really good at reducing the ability for GABA to, uh, you know, inhibit uh, glutamate activity in the way that I mentioned about those neurons that fire 200 times a second. It mm. specifically stops those GABA neurons from working. But, uh, I, you know, I think there's something special with serotonin and there's even something special with tryptophan. Uh, you know, tryptophan is the precursor to making serotonin. So if you cut out tryptophan in your diet, it's an amino acid, then you land up getting depressed. It's, it's just this universal kind of finding. 
Um, and a lot of people thought that the effects of tryptophan were in making serotonin, but it actually has its own unique function on the microtubules, which, which are the structures that make up neurons. And they can bind to these structures, this scaffolding in neurons, and they can make those scaffoldings behave in completely different ways. So, you know, it's possible that serotonin may have a limited function and that it is perhaps its precursor that makes neurons behave in ways that are just so bizarre. They even interact with like quantum gravity and things, which, you know, and you start asking yourself, is if consciousness is quantum, then maybe, you know, the serotonin system and tryptophan by extension is having this special ability to make our consciousness elevate into new dimensions. I mean, you know, sometimes hippies are right and I'm keen to ensure whether or not they are like <laughs> that's important. But um, yeah, there's, there is a strong link between serotonin and the opioid system. Definitely. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you know, it's, you have to be contrived in experimentation. But if anybody is experimenting with new opioids or new serotonergics, please let me know. I'd love <laughs> to find out. Sounds really interesting. It would save me on experimenting with them. Yeah. So uh, there, there's some really interesting peptides, by the way. Oh, we, we haven't gone into peptides yet. Um, well, that's... We, we can, I can mention it. Yeah, we can get stuck into, because I know we had a few things we wanted to talk about. Um, and in particular... We can probably start out with that one that you uh, mentioned um, in the Facebook groups and things like that, the HA <laughs> FGL. FGL. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting stuff. Yeah, that is, um, in, you know, in my view, it's kind of historical, really, because uh, it's doing something that no other peptide has really been able to do, um, in my opinion, really, because the brain encodes your cognitive skills in three-dimensional space, right? You've got your temporal lobe over here, you've got your occipital lobe over here, and they do different functions, right? So if you've got a drug that's going from one area, well, that wants to influence the brain, and you want that drug to improve your ability to make plans, right? Executive functioning. That means you want that drug to go to the area of the brain that is influencing your ability to make plans. Right, which means that there's this huge dependency on this drug to move around in space in your brain. So it's got to just go from A to B. And peptides, a class of drug that seem very safe and very effective at changing signals that happen in the brain, they, they peptides are not very good at moving around in the brain, traditionally speaking. So when people take CMAX or CLANK, uh, to you know, to to serve a function, to do anything, they are implicitly expecting it to be good enough to travel to the area of the brain that will serve the function that they want it to. And there have not been many attempts at ensuring, through modifications, through you know other chemicals, just some way of ensuring a peptide can get to where it needs to go. You know, we, we simply take the peptide and hope for the best. And that's not how the brain works, unfortunately. You can't expect something to get to a very distant region of the brain that may have not very good blood supply or a very tough enzyme environment or, you know, has so many neurons that it's difficult to move around them, you know, because it's so dense. There are all these difficulties that peptides have that people do not empathize with. So... The hyaluronate FGL, the peptides that I've been, the HA FGL, the one I've been mentioning in the groups, that has this unique 
uh, modification to it. And it's a remarkable modification that ensures, it, it doesn't guarantee, but it is a very contrived, purposeful effort to make those peptides go to where they need to go to improve cognition, unlike every other peptide that you can buy. So it's really, really important. And it's in my, that's why I consider it historic because so, you know, we just don't actually have any data on whether or not these peptides can go to where they need to go um, and ensure that and whether, how, you know, how much better they could be if they could get there with in high amounts. So this hyaluronate FGL is using a kind of uh, taxi driver, if you will. The hyaluronate is like a taxi driving it around the brain. And it's so good at getting around the brain that the scans they've done in research papers show that it seems to get across the entire brain from the back to the front. It's all there. Wow. It's just soaking in this stuff. So obviously that has some, a lot of potential benefits to the different cognitive domains that we can improve. Perhaps we haven't been able to be better at planning from nootropics because we haven't been able to guarantee that they even get there, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Although the, in preliminary results, it doesn't seem as simple as that. But um, yeah, some people have been taking hyaluronate FGL. I haven't even mentioned what the FGL does yet. Yeah. Um, the, so the, the taxi driver is the hyaluronate, yeah. right? And the FGL is the passenger, the drug. And so what the that, drug does... That hyaluronic yeah. acid, is that is that the skin? Because I know there's a lot of skincare products. It helps with the collagen and stuff like that. What, is that the same you refer to? Right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Exact same. Yeah, this right. hyaluronate has... Um, is essentially scaffolding to the body, right? It's, it's a hugely abundant form of structuring tissues. And scaffolding has a lot of desirable qualities to being able to taxi drive substances around the body and brain. Scaffolding is strong. It can be, it can vary in length. You know, you can attach things onto scaffolding that help it attach other things onto scaffolding, you know, you can have linkers, joiners, and that's very desirable for, for compounds to, to <coughs> modify them. Mm. So what I did, as has been done by many people before, only in research papers, not, not much further than that, is get a very small a scaffolding of hyaluronate and then attach peptides onto it, um, multiple. So like just sticking them on there with a certain special form of hyaluronate. And if it's very small then it gets around the brain very quickly. And of course, this scaffolding has its own receptors to, to move around. So it has these, you know, these neurons and, brain and cells of all kinds just facilitating its moving. They're providing a highway, if you like, for the taxi to just drive up and down wherever it likes. And it is the same thing that's found in skin supplements. And at first, you know, I was concerned because the because hyaluronate is related to the ability for tumors to metastasize, right? And the more signaling you have of scaffolding, the more tumors feel confident to break away and form a new tumor somewhere else. But it, it, you know, it turns out that this is either negligible or I don't know. There's a huge conspiracy going on because that you can buy very small hyaluronates from shops, you know, nearly all around the world. I and mean, it's in skin supplements, it's in, yeah. you know, a, a bone repair as well. But it's uh, fascinating. And, you know, the, the bigger the hyaluronate, the safer it is, generally speaking. Mm. But yeah, you, you will, um, it's in shops all around the world. And I'm sure it's going to be a bit like CBD, where it just explodes in popularity. So, so if, is this still, you're still referring to oral administration? Because now I'm, I'm curious to know whether this is still like, 
the benefit of the the hyaluronic um, is that when it's consumed orally, it's so. Or are you talking nasal or sublingual? Well, uh, hyaluronate is is very flexible. It can be taken in multiple different ways. I'd be interested to know how people respond if they were to take skin supplement hyaluronate and they were to take it intranasally, for example. That would be quite, you know, interesting. But um, yeah, one of the brilliant things about it is that you can take it orally and it doesn't get broken down. It still does a perfect job of, you know, what its job is, um, and that does open up a huge field for compounds that must be intravenously injected or, you know, you can't take sub- sublingually. Suddenly you can take them sublingually. You could take them orally. You could even uh, rub them on your skin and get yeah. absorbed that way without the need for DMSO or other cats, pack, cat piss smelling substances. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, DMSO stinks. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I think it, it's a lot of opportunity, not only for our nootropic ambitions, but also for you know, drug ambitions all around the world. And it does look that way. There are new papers every year saying how amazing hyaluronate is, and it will be a $60 billion industry, you know, by the end of the decade, these things. So, yeah, it's exciting. Um, But, uh, yeah, FGL. And I haven't actually seen the interview with Ryan Smith. I've been looking for it. Is it on YouTube? Uh, It's not not released yet, but it'll be live in a few weeks probably. Oh, great, great. Fantastic. Well, I, I really look forward to that. Uh, and I'm, you know, hoping that he mentioned FGL, the peptide. The um, FGL peptide is very exciting, basically, mm-hmm. because it works a bit like sunifaram and uniferam. Mm. Do you know these nootropics? The amp- They're the quite... ampokines? Or... Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, spot on. Yeah, they are. And I love ampokines. Uh, and the amporeceptor in general is just phenomenal. It's wonderful, really. It, it's called ampa. Uh, for reasons of scientific, chemical, molecular reasons, right? But it amplifies right. neurons. It's a pun, and they didn't even realize it. So, it's it's, so the, let's break that down. So you've got NMDA and Ampicon. So like, let's break them, break them down as well. Uh, great, yeah, okay. So, you know, glutamate, the neurotransmitter that's so highly abundant in the brain, it has many different receptors, right? And one of them... Uh, helps move potassium and, you know, well, it modulates all the ions in the brain so that the salts, basically, you know, sodium, calcium, potassium, magnesium, and moving them into neurons will just make them fire, right? So if you open up all of these receptors that move ions across, that will just make them fire, right? So because they they get charged, because of these salts have charges to them. Um, and those receptors are the AMPA receptors. Mm. They move ions across. And, you know, that sounds as though it could be dangerous. And I agree. AMPA receptors moving ions around, making neurons fire like crazy could be very dangerous. It's true. However, they do serve a function, and that function is used all the time. You can never escape from moving ions around. And the ability to do that delicately in a way that agrees with how neurons operate normally is the pinnacle of therapeutic potential um, in, in, you know, in many ways. Uh, and that's why so much research has been done on being able to use these AMPA receptors. Um, because a lot of it comes down to which neurons are firing and which ones aren't, right? A lot of disease just kind of comes down to that in terms of the brain. But let's move on to um, NMDA receptors. Yeah. NMDA receptors are like 
the gatekeepers for learning. They're, they're, they're big, angry people who could do you a massive favor, but they could also punch you to the ground. You know, they're standing at the gates saying, yeah, beyond these gates are all your wildest dreams of learning, of intelligence, of deduction. But we're only going to let you pass if you do the right thing at the right time, basically. Mm. If you don't do the right thing at the right time, we're not letting you through. In fact, we're going to turn you so far away, you'll never get here and to pass these gates, you know. So that's I'm saying this because a lot of people don't like NMDA receptors because they see it as the bane of their existence because it's where the too much excitation comes about, <clears throat> too much mm. activity. It's just way too much. And you land up with brain fog and you can't think clearly. And that would be because of NMDA receptors. But at the same time, the same token, the same ability for them to stop you thinking properly is also is what allows them to make you think very, very clearly if they're used correctly. So NMDA receptors, they, they let calcium into neurons and mm -hmm. calcium is very, very stimulating. And if you have a few too many calcium molecules in your, in your neurons, then that neuron could die. So the level of NMDA activity is what's important. And it, it explains why a lot of people will get benefit from things like memantin, because there's just a slight uh, disbalance between their glutamate and their GABA, and it means they have to rebalance it with uh, things like memantin, which is just an NMDA blocker. It's also a dopamine agonist as well, which mm. complicates things. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, so NMDA has, is a huge, huge kind of uh, infamous almost, I think, uh, receptor. Mm. But mm. it doesn't stop there. See, glutamate has this like secret up its sleeve that not many people really know about. And it's got this secret ability to just change how your brain operates in the long term. And that's, uh, they don't have a creative name really, metabotropic glutamate receptors. Oh, yep. And they're very, so like metabotropic, yeah. it's a bit like metabolism. And your metabolism is something that kind of you know, it's a very broad function that is does it stretches over a long period of time, you know, and it will control very broad aspects of how your body works. Um, and you can see these as like the metabolism of your glutamate uh, because they interact in such a broad, long-term sense because they can influence how glutamate is handled. They can influence how GABA is handled. They can influence just about anything that they want to, really. And... Uh, these, these receptors, these metabotropic glutamate receptors, they are very, very similar. So although there's many different groups of them, there's many different kinds of metabotropic glutamate receptors, they are so similar in structure that it's difficult to make a drug that influences just one of them, right? Because mm -hmm. they're just so identical. You know, it's, you just can't make a drug that just interacts with one. And that leads to difficulties and it me that's probably the reason why not many people know about them is because there isn't a nootropic on the market that is primarily known for doing that but aniracetam for example is yeah. a racetam that manages to uh, break down into something that will then influence metabotropic uh, group two glutamate receptors that's the same i think that's the same that um alcar epigenetically upregulates i don't know if you've seen because when, uh, when I use Elkar, I do se seem to get that. I don't know if that's coming from the noradrenaline effect or... Yeah. yeah. 
or the mitochondria effect. Mm. I think it's got a huge mitochondrial effect as well. Yeah. And it somehow like, like influences nerve growth factor. Yeah. Which is, you know, is quite astounding. I don't know how many people actually get increased nerve growth factor uh, mm. from it because I'm kind of skeptical. It's amino acids, you know, you shouldn't be able to have such powerful abilities, but I've been wrong before about amino acids, you know, and their ability to do things. Have you looked so. into, because um, I know you mentioned uh, Mamantine, but one of my crazy friends actually got his hands on MK801. Have you? Heard? Oh, my gosh. What was he thinking? <laughs> oh, my word. Christ, does he want to be a rat? Oh Not even rats God. like it. I know. No, it's, that is crazy. You, know, you must have some really bad uh, uh, oh. GABA problems or glutamate problems. That's... Well, so tell me, go on, spill the oh. beans. This is the first report I've heard of yeah. MK801. Oh, this guy's uh, got a PhD in neuroscience uh, and like he he actually invented the uh, polysomnography, the um, sleep software. Um, but anyway, he's... Oh, oh Jack Aloka. You probably oh. know him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting guy. Yeah. Well, what was he doing with that? I mean- <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a while ago. I think he was with one of his friends uh, and... It just sounded horrific. Just like, yeah, I just I can't imagine. Like, what do you think mechanistically? Like, what do you think that would do to the? Because we know it's a powerful NMDA antagonist. What What do you think that would do? What I think that would do is, um, I mean, it would really have no finesse. It would just block all the signals that are even just vital to normal brain functioning. I think that would give highly dissociated states. I could imagine, you know, a lot of contrast in neural activity in certain regions of the brain. There would be some regions that would be completely shut off, other regions that are only a little bit shut off. And so you just get this very distorted, warped experience. Um, and it, it just wouldn't sound very fun at all, honestly. The, the biggest thing I think with uh, NMDA receptors includes, you know, a lot of different kinds of drugs. It's like the details, the minute ability for them to interact with the receptor. So like how quickly they bind to the receptor and how quickly they disassociate from the receptor. That's the kind of thing that is a big uh, dictator in how therapeutic or what the kind of effects will be. And I just, you know, MK801 is not designed to have finesse, you know, and it's just the kind of thing that where you potentially completely, you could collapse, you might just fall asleep, you might have no memory whatsoever of even buying it. <laughs> you know? And you just see this powder going, oh, that's weird. I don't remember buying MK. <laughs> you know, um, a so, whole range of issues. Yeah, so I want to send, I want to go back uh, around that uh, NMDA receptor and talk about magnesium because like my listeners, a lot of my listeners would take magnesium. So do you want to explain what's the interaction yeah. there? Yes. Um, so magnesium is very, very important. It's got the, so I, I'd say I would begin by talking about the timing of neurons firing. So when you have two neighboring neurons, the, the one of them will fire and it will lead. So when I say fire, it means that there'll be a electrical polarity and that creates this uh, traveling current of electricity and then it zooms to the end of the neuron, and then it will release neurochemicals. And then it, those neurochemicals will then trigger the same you know, electrical polarity, and then it'll keep going on and on. And magnesium is a way, it's like a coincidence detector, because it tells, it helps neurons identify if a neuron is firing randomly 
or if it's firing in a way that is important. So, and it does this through the timing of neurons. So the timing will uh, discern whether or not it's responding to a uh, neural action potential or a neural firing uh, appropriately, or if it's just firing randomly. So there's, you know, neurons can fire randomly or they can have a, a, a coherent response. And magnesium is a way for neurons to stop the randomness of neural activity from dominating the whole brain. So magnesium blocks, it's a blocker. It will stop uh, NMDA from working, right? And it will unblock the NMDA receptor if uh, there are AMPA receptors working as well. So if there's going to be a, an action potential, or if there is one, and then it actually is triggers the whole neuron to fire, if that happens, then the magnesium will disassociate and then it'll allow for that NMDA receptor to work, which then leads, it opens the gates that I was mentioning. And it says, you know, this neuron has now received a, a coherent appropriate, well-timed uh, signal. Um, so I suppose really the best thing to understand is something called spike-timed dependent plasticity, <laughs> which sounds pretty complicated, but it's basically a way for neurons to tell if their activity is because of a previous neuron, so a, a one that was, you know, helps it get fired. That's funny. Um, so, yeah, and... You know, if, if the magnesium doesn't disassociate from the NMDA receptor, then it means that it hasn't thought that that signal it received was important enough. And it was just a random signal that wasn't helpful in cognition. So if you don't have enough magnesium, that means you get neurons that will end up firing at even the even whimsical signals, right? So even ones that aren't very important. And what what's kind of uh, surprising is that if you give rats magnesium L3 and A's, for example, yeah, they will develop a higher synaptic density. And that higher, so they'll have more connections between neurons, which allows for more thoughts, which allows for higher cognition, better memory and learning. And, uh, you know, you kind of think that magnesium, by inhibiting NMDA signals, the, the gatekeepers of learning, you would think that there wouldn't be an increase in neural connections. You'd think that if you stop NMDA from working, you're going to stop learning from happening. You're going to stop new synapses from working because NMDA is the gatekeeper for all the learning and intelligentness and intellect. So if you stop that from working, you'd think you'd stop you know, uh, better learning. But the, the, the nuance of the brain is not about quantity. It's about quality. And if you allow for neurons to better be able to, to detect whether there is some coincidental firing, whether there's some random nonsensical firing that's going on, or if it's a very uh, uh, appropriate, well, kind of well-organized thought, if you will, if you help neurons detect the good signals from the bad signals, then they land up making more synapses and they have a better ability to uh, uh, change their structure. <coughs> So that's, I recommend that people understand the spike time dependent plasticity. It's mm. a nice kind of logical concept that um, is, it will really help people understand the, the general workings of the brain. And, you know, if you look at a graph then of STDP, as it's called, then spike time dependent plasticity, then you'll see, oh, it's about the timing, you know, and if one neuron fires after another neuron, 
at the right time, then it must mean that that signal is being carried appropriately across neurons, and then the learning happens. But if it's the wrong way around, then it won't. But yeah, that's the kind of general understanding of magnesium. It, it was it's described quite often as a coincidence detector because it can help neurons tell if there's some stochastic firing or random firing uh, to a, a very well ordered kind of constructive series of firing. Yeah. So yeah. That's that's. But I, I still have a. I, I still need to be re-educated on this. I did this so many years ago, and I've been so embedded in pharmacology that a lot of the kind of basic stuff is almost out of the other ear now. Yeah. <laughs> Went to, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's the first time I've heard of it um, being known as the coincidence detector. So. Oh really? Okay. I think maybe now. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You've got that. You you can claim that uh, quote. so um we can we can sort of transition uh back into some of the peptides you listed off um the gsb 106 as well yeah gsb 106 have you uh come across it before brand new to me so that's that's a shock (laughs) yeah 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 it is you know um well i suppose that's uh, brilliant then really um yeah so gsb 106 i found out about it like four years ago and i saw that it had a similar kind of ability for magnesium 3 and 8 to increase the synapses the connections between neurons uh to a very high degree and i thought oh that, that's quite special um and then I, I learned about its structure and the fact that it came from russia in fact the same the same institution that made nurpept and cmax or that researched it heavily and, and and oh yeah, oh, blimey, yes. Yeah. Rocket fuel with yeah. a diamond attached onto it. That's basically <laughs> brilliant. It's <laughs> hilarious that you know you can add bits of diamond onto <laughs> peptides and compounds, and they suddenly have completely different qualities. Um, but yeah, uh, GSB one hundred six. It's made it well. It's designed based on the BDNF structure, mm. the well-known, well-famed, well-loved BDNF, and. But the scientists began to notice that the whole protein is not involved in every receptor interaction, right? Only a part of the protein is actually being used uh, when it binds to a receptor. So they said, well, what if we just take the part of the receptor that's used? So they went on a mission to identify which amino acids are involved in the uh, ability for the BDNF protein to stimulate the uh, receptors, right, that it interacts with. And then they, they managed to reduce the amino the number of amino acids, and they found it was, you know, it was a string, and then it was just two amino acids. And that just two amino acids seemed to be enough to stimulate the receptor. You know, BDNF is a huge protein, and then they found that you could just only actually use two uh, amino acids to get a lot of, but not the complete, effect. Right. Um, but... Yeah, and so they just took these two amino acids and then they duplicated it to kind of copy the structure of BDNF binding with another BDNF molecule as it does. And so they just duplicated it and then they found that, you know, it has a lot of the effects of BDNF. So it can increase synapses. It can help uh, neurons last longer by preventing apoptotic signals. So we'll, you know, get rid of those um, as well as have uh, help neurotransmitters go to the forefront of neural activity. So they are ready to be released. And the increase in synapses and the ability to reduce apoptosis, 
those two things were needed to elicit a antidepressant response. So I, you know, a few years later, I managed to get get the uh, substance, and people have been taking it, and they've had some very interesting reports. We, I have personally learned a lot about people's brains and just how different they can be. Yeah. You know, you don't really imagine so many left field occurrences to happen, you know, just straight out of the blue. And you think, wow, where did that come from? Uh, and BDNF and GSB 106 is, is one of those things. So people reported having a higher heart rate with GSB whilst getting a kind of depersonalization, antidepressant, anti-anxiety effect. But it um, and some people had a much higher heart rate, and I was very surprised. And they couldn't take it any longer, despite getting uh, benefits, antidepressant benefits. So you know that was a shame. Um, was, that, but, was, that, was that noted in the um, in the rat studies or any in the preliminary um, studies? At no, all? it wasn't. No, oh. no, not at all. Um, because the reason being, I think, is you know human beings vary so much, and although I think it does increase their heart rate slightly in the normal rats. And, you know, I think it does for pretty much everyone who takes, who takes GSB it will probably increase the heart rate a little bit, but the people where it increases it a lot are perhaps individuals uh, in, in, from what I found they, these are people who've had chronic stress disorders. Yeah. And it seems to be that the brain just suddenly interprets the BDNF signal, the primary uh, uh, learning, the primary structurally changing kind of neurohormone. It interprets this, change it, uh, this hormone as being something where it could be bad and it says high heart rate stress and it even increased anxiety in some people mm. so i think that the the very identity of bdnf is different it, between people and the bdnf can mean having lower depression or it could mean a stress response and your brain kind of flares up with this anxiety at the idea of changing almost you know, and I, uh, that's really, uh, really interesting. Uh, though I have personally taken a really, really, really high dose of GSB because I think, uh, things like cannabis, for example, that will change your BDNF system and it can land up down regulating a lot of the BDNF receptors and things. And that, that's very problematic, of course. So when I took it and I had a normal dose and I didn't get anything, and then I had five, you know, five times the normal dose and then 50 times the normal dose, and I still didn't get anything. And then when I had 100 times the normal dose, then I finally got something. <laughs> and I felt like this, yeah. And I just, people were saying, oh, dude, are you crazy? You know, they were checking up on me. Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd had quite a bit beforehand and didn't notice anything. But uh, yeah, I got this uh, really kind of um like personal almost like a really deep rooted sense of relaxation and that things would be okay you know at the time i just had like 400 pounds taken from me from paypal and i was quite anxious and stressed and i thought you know you bastards you <laughs> can i swear on here oh gosh i'm yeah, sorry it's fine, man it's fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> i should have checked but um yeah i was very angry at that day and when i had the gsb i i went out to the shops and i completely forgot about those worries i just mm. didn't they weren't on my mind hovering over me mm. you know in, in the way the stress does to stop us from being as happy as we can in the moment and mm. i realized oh hang on i literally haven't thought about it mm. and that, that was remarkable in a sense but i was very very relaxed and i felt much more at ease mm. yeah. 
Was the so, was the GS, GSB also administered orally or? Um, um, yes. So it has been administered orally. However, it's not very efficient. But the Russian scientists have uh, they have this method that they tried out with Nurpet and a lot of other dipeptides and creations of theirs to see if they could enhance its ability to be absorbed orally. And it didn't work with Nurpet, and it didn't work with a lot of other things, but it did work with GSB. Mm. So much so that you could, it became far, far more potent. It became 10 times more potent, or actually 50 times more potent, if you consider the uh, uh, power of effect, right? So it just became way better at causing the antidepressant effect. Um, and that's because... It, I think, at least, that it manages to disperse the GSB all across the brain. So you end up getting a little bit of BDNF all across the brain. And that, it, that's perfect, really. And that could be why there was such a pronounced antidepressant effect. Hopefully, you know, if I have a bit of um, monetary freedom, I will develop the, you know, that oral GSB, which would be incredible. And I can't imagine, you know, Russia would be very angry if I did, because they, they're not angry at people selling CMAX. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. So that, that's yeah. You can buy it on my website, by the way. Anyone's watching. I was about to. I was about to ask. So, where can people, yeah, find these compounds and things like that? Because they're very novel and they're hard to obviously source. So, tell us more about um, where they can find these compounds. Yeah. Um, so it is pretty difficult to manufacture. Uh, you can't just go to a normal peptide lab to to do it. And I noticed that. Um, uh, I think it was, no, it wasn't. Uh, I noticed a peptide vendor that was selling it and they were selling, you know, 50 uh, milligrams for like $800 and that's quite expensive. You know, that's made, that could potentially only be a hundred doses, which is yeah expensive, but they can buy it on a uh, holistic research for a much cheaper price. You can get a hundred milligrams for $500. Um, or if you want to buy less than a hundred milligrams or more than 10 milligrams, then come to me and I'm sure we can work something out. You know, I understand that some people are in financial difficulties at the moment. So, yeah, but uh, I'm, I've got the certificates of analysis and all that stuff as well. So, yeah, try it out, see if it works for you. You know, some people don't seem to notice an effect from it, which is unfortunate, but I think it's the nose problem, you know, the, the enzymes in the nose that break it down too quickly. Yeah. But the correct dosage is, you know, between 200 and 1,000 milligrams, but some people take 100 micrograms, Sorry, 200, sorry, yeah, 200 micrograms to 1,000 micrograms. And some people, they seem to get too much of an effect from 100 micrograms. So it's it's a bit bit up in the air, really. Yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting compound. Definitely go and check it out. I will definitely make sure to have them linked uh, in the show notes. I'll, I'll have a chat with you after the show. Um, <clears throat> just one question that came up as we're discussing the GSB, um, and it's mentioned across many uh, clinical studies, and that's, Basically, to analyze and assess the antidepressant effects of compounds, they use the forced swimming test. So do you want to explain yeah. what that is? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, it's, it's kind of based on the idea that your level of happiness or your, you know, level of depression, you know, is based on how much effort you can put in to a, a difficult task. So the fundamental idea is like, if you have something difficult that is stopping you from doing something that you think is necessary, how much will you put up a fight? Wow. How much fighting power do you have in you? That's kind of the idea of to, the forced swimming to me, test. 
to me, that sounds like more of like incentive motivation more so than like, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I'd say to, to, to rats, something necessary is like, you know, um, being able to move around or being, being able to, uh, you know, breathe, keep your head above water or to find somewhere where you don't have to constantly struggle. So like the ability to evade struggling is like what it is to rats. Of course, like people have very different things facing them, very different problems. So, you know, if you're going to use an animal model, then yeah, you have to kind of really take things down to their core, uh, functions uh, and things. But with, um, yeah, it, it does sound much more like motivation really. But with a lot of rats, when, you know, fear is a huge tool, basically, mm-hmm. and they land up just always running away from fear. There's, there's barely any prefrontal cortex there to make them do otherwise. So if you've, you know, give them some kind of stressor, then they kind of treat that as if it's a fear. But mm. the forced swimming test is uh, essentially seeing how long they will swim um, when they can't move. Is, it, is that right? Yeah, I sometimes get them muddled up. I think so. Yeah. Oh, there's so, the other so ones, the, um, the tail suspension test. That's, that's like the other one I think they use as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah that's another one true. And, um, and like the learn the platform hidden platform yeah. test as well tests their ability to remember. I think it's things. the Morris, the Morris water maze or something. Yes. That, there it is. Yeah. See uh, awful with names even for, um, testing, but yeah, the, the, I think when, when we, talk about these tests we have to remember what it's like to be the rat right you have to think as if you are the rat okay and a lot of times they'll test something called like the novelty seeking test right and then if if a rat comes across an object that it has seen before right if it's seen it before then you would expect it not to investigate that object a lot because it's already seen it before so it's not going to go up to it and sniff it and see what it's like but if you have something that increases curiosity, then it may check it out again. It may it may have not gone to the other side. It may have remembered, hey, I didn't go to the other side of that object, you know. So it's I sometimes have a, a bit of a squabble with you know um, these ideas about measuring rats because a lot of the time they they may uh, like sometimes they measure how often rats climb or try to climb out of the enclosure that they're in, and you know, that could, that's sometimes interpreted as yeah, just this uh, irrelevant behavior. You know, you'll, you'll keep it in there in the graph, but it's not necessarily something that's used as a significant indicator. They don't say, yes, the, the rat was climbing much more often, so it clearly had, you know, more fear of the enclosure that it was in, or it had more motivation to go out and see the world, or it wanted to go to and apply to a job. You know, the, you know there are so many different ways you can interpret behaviors of, of animals mm. and sometimes I, I think they may not suffice but um yeah the, the ability for rats to c- continue working in the face of of uh you know uh, struggling then that, that is generally considered to be a way of measuring how depressed they are wow and but the, there's another problem with that in that if you're if you're uh, restricting their movements and you're measuring how how hard they're trying to move then if you gave them a muscle enhancer, then they would work all the time. They would be yeah. fidgeting around, constantly moving their muscles. So it doesn't quite work. There's a there's um, a peptide from spinach, and oh. it, it enhances glucose uptake. Oh, do, do you know it? I think um, 
the owner of Nootropics Depot had it at one point, and he said he was, uh, he was too scared. Rubiscolin. Yeah, thank you. Rubiscolin. Oh. Yes, oh, yeah. yes, that's it. And you can see on the antidepressant effect, it's really, really high. I mean, these rats were constantly moving. They were struggling all the time. They were just had so much bountiful uh, efforts to get out of their uh, restrictions. But of course, it it helps glucose be uptaken into muscles. Yeah. And it also has antidepressant effects by being opioidetic in nature. So yeah. you get this kind of muddling of the effects, which is irritating. But it is a really cool idea as to what you could do to enhance muscle function. Mm. You know, glucose uptake is pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Who knows? You can make a Superman uh, pill or something that made you super strong. Yeah. That'd be that would be incredible. You know. Um, so but yeah. Yeah, Jacob, you sort of briefly mentioned. Um, I want to. We'll finish. This will be our last topic because I'll definitely have you back on the show because we're gonna have to do like more of these, or we might even do some Facebook lives or Facebook. We'll just repost them and stuff. Um, but we'll go. I want to touch on um, fear extinction because that's a. I want to see what you know in that realm. Oh my, uh, yeah, I can't say this is a big topic of mine, um, but I know that the the one thing that comes to my mind when I think of fear extinction is its relevancy to analysing the efficacy of nootropics. If something gets rid of your fear, then it could do that in so many different ways. What um, what did you say? Fear? It was fear getting rid of fear, right? Uh, what was the terminology used again? Fear extinction. Fear extinction, yeah. 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 Um, yeah so, yeah, um, <clears throat> some things look as though they are getting rid of fear, and you say, oh, this is, you know, re- reducing their amygdala activity or something. Um, but they may be uh, stopping memory from working. It may mean that they are forgetting why they should be afraid of, of that thing in front of them. Of course, sometimes you get stimuli that don't need any memory. They can just eradicate fear. But, you know, I think in terms of a cognitive perspective, it's it's not a very good way of measuring, you know, um, even emotionality, even the ability to regulate your own fear. Because if you give rats benzodiazepines, they won't be as scared, right? They'll just be dulled. So they'll just be pretty inhibited and they won't really care much. And you can, you know... The, some of the tests are the uh, the open field test is one way of measuring anxiety levels, and if you you meant to sort of plot them down in the middle of a bunch of uh, uh, routes, so like corridors, and if they walk into a corridor, then it means that they like being in the enclosed space and they feel more safe in the enclosed space. And if if you give them benzodiazepines, you put them in the middle. And they just stay in the middle of the corridors, which is in big open space where there could be predators flying over and things. And that they just sort of sit there thinking, oh, I've got so many different options. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't really think I need one of these options. I might just roll around. Um, you know, and that's pretty funny. But um, yeah, I think fear extin- extinction is very useful. I can see how it does relate to our modern day lifestyles. You know, it's definitely true that we have these micro fears that just come up when we're making decisions that are small or large and we realize oh i don't want to face that struggle so i'm just not going to approach it at all Uh, so i can see a big relevancy there but i don't think it should be characterized in the way that we characterize normal fear and i think when you delve into these more sophisticated elements of human behavior uh, then it's more difficult to test animals with drugs to see if it will translate to humans. Because especially with these things of 
uh, you know, how we approach fearful events can be very sophisticated. Mm. And, um, you know, I think it would be more helpful to, I mean, I'm in, I'm a molecular neuroscientist. I, of course, just love going from the bottom up kind of thing. You know, I like looking at the, the molecules and seeing what we, what we can rely on when in reality it's very difficult to rely on a molecule when they're interacting with 20, you know, 50, 100 billion neurons that are all interconnected in networks that complicate everything. But, you know, personally, you know, I think our ability to adapt to things and to process them properly, like when we are scared, we just refuse to process them. Um, and if we, you know, open up the ability to process things before you even realize you're afraid or before you allow the fear to take over, or if you just stop the fear from happening at all, which is a more risky way, I think, of approaching things. If you just stop fear itself, then, you know, you may land up with unwanted effects. But if you allow the brain to just process things without getting afraid, but just to process them anyway, then I think that's a really, uh, that's the kind of thing that I work towards, for example, with GSB, mm. you know, that's mimics BDNF and BDNF just allows things to happen without there being, I can speak from a psychological perspective, at least, and as well as a molecular, but it would be a different explanation. But, you know, I think that it allows the stress resilience to be far stronger and for people not to in interpret things as being emotionally salient, mm. right? And that they're not necessarily something that you have to get worked up about or fearful of, uh, but it's, it's something that you can process anyway and then decide your response later on. And the, the like yoga and things, I've, I've heard lots of middle-aged women talk about how it helps them be resilient to stress and it Im increases things, you know, exactly BDNF and exactly. nerve growth. Factor. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, mm. and I tell people uh, that it does these things and they say, wow, that makes perfect sense. You know, and my, my husband tells me I'm a fool for doing yoga because he, perceives it as just a, a form of exercise that's done very slowly and therefore a really bad form of exercise, you know, when it, it's not, it's that slow movement yeah. that's, well, you know, it's for loads of reasons, but, yeah. you know, um, yeah. And I, I would be really interested to know if you find things that help combat, um, you know, fear and improve fear extinction yeah. and help us in, in a cortical way, you know, not just sort of dumb down our senses, but help us manage ideas that are, kind of risky you know it is it is a it is a complex topic um the the thing the one sort of pathway that comes to my mind is the um it's brought up quite a lot on the um reddit forums it's the histone hdac inhibitor yeah. uh, like sodium yeah, valparate and huge topic. yeah all those mm. things but we'll, we'll, we'll probably have to save that for another episode man because um yeah we'll, we'll cluster it into another another uh, podcast but jacob where can people so obviously I want my listeners to be able to follow your content, your products, whatever it is. So do you want to, um, you know, mention where they can find your, anything of your stuff? You know? Yeah. Uh, great. Thank you for, um, yeah. Reminding me. Um, yeah. So I've got my own website, my web store where you can purchase my products. I wouldn't recommend people dive into buying hyaluronate FGL because it's very risky and we still need to get some more information on it. If you're very experienced and learned, then, I talk to me, but yeah, uh, I have a Facebook group called Plasticity Dot City Nootropics. Uh, yeah, it's plasticity with a dot before the city. So um, yeah, and I, I really, really like uh, my group. It needs to be a bit more active, but yeah, that was born out of the frustration with like a lack of innovation. 
you know, a lack of the desire for discovery for new things. So that's where we talk about new ideas, new inventions. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, hist- it's got things there that you can't find anywhere else. So definitely go join Plasticity, Nootropics. Um, and yeah, my uh, website is called um, holisticresearch.com with a W-H for holistic, not a W, uh, sorry, an H-O. So yeah, go look at that. I've spent a lot of time writing the articles for the products that we have there, for some of them at least, um, not some others. But yeah, that, that, there's a lot of detailed information there in, in some ways. And I'm always responding to emails. So if you have any questions about any of the products or any questions at all, really, including the potential for using electrical and magnetic stimulation, which you know I hope we'll get around to in another uh, podcast because that'll be really fun. Yeah. I look forward to that. Um, yeah, and... You know, in the, you'll find me around in the nootropics groups as well. You can type my name in on the search bar and see what potentially <laughs> rude but informative things I may have said. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But um, yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, for asking, and thanks uh, for having me on the, on the show. It's oh, been man. really fun. It's been really fun, and for me, this is like. I'm learning at the same time we're sharing ideas and I've got other ideas, other business ideas that I've got um, to discuss with you because like some of this stuff really excites me in particular because um, there's not many people in this space that really know their stuff. Uh, and so yeah. you, you definitely, like you tick those boxes, man. And I'm really, I'm just glad that we connected because uh, like I can definitely see us, you know, you never know doing something in the future. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I look forward to those kinds of things as well. And I'm glad to, uh, discuss and, and pursue opportunities like that. And of course I'd love to do them with yourself, you know, someone who knows a lot about the body more than I do, I'm sure, you know, testosterone <laughs> as well. Really interesting stuff. I've, yeah. I have learned a lot from your thinking as well, like vitamin D, for example, I, I took some vitamin D like an hour ago and it's sort of 10 PM here right now. So, and I was thinking of your article about how, you know, that, I mean, that is, that's genius thinking right there. Right. <laughs> I mean, your body getting so much vitamin D in a late time in the day is, isn't, you know, going to be counter, uh, intuitive. So yeah, I'd be really glad and to, to do things, uh, with you. Definitely. That sounds cool, exciting. Man. Cool. Well, um, <clears throat> thanks everyone for tuning into, uh, yet another episode of the boost your biology podcast. Um, yeah, just a massive, massive uh, privilege and pleasure to have you on the show, Jacob. Yeah, Thanks it's so been much. a privilege as well, of course. On my side, I'm very grateful. Um, I'm really appreciative. I'm so glad you reached out. Um, it's a brilliant idea. And I look forward to uh, talking to you about your stuff as well as um, pursuing some uh, you know, ideas and things. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.